Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for insightful analysis and enlightening discussions. I'm Michael Bull. Thanks for being with us. Well, today we're going to talk about retail and retail real estate. You know, retail has been the most volatile sector in commercial real estate. Well, with that volatility, that brings challenges and that brings opportunities. We'll look at both today. Please welcome my first guest, Ryan Severino. He's the senior economist with Reese. Ryan, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Michael, good to be with you again. Well, Ryan, thank you. And as I mentioned, uh, retail has been uh, volatile, but it's been improving, hasn't it? What did you see for property fundamentals throughout the country in 2014? Did you see some improvement? You know, overall, it was really a mixed bag depending upon retail subtype. Uh, neighborhood and community centers are still having a bit of a rough go of things out there. Vacancy declined during the year by about 20 basis points. Uh, however, asking rents actually grew by about 1.8%, which was just about on par with inflation. And that was the best year for rent growth since 2007 before the recession. So, uh, you know, things are getting better, just maybe not at the pace I think that uh, a lot of people would like to see. And then for regional malls, vacancy actually increased by 10 basis points. Now, that increase was largely due to the closing of a number uh, of Sears stores around the country. But that said, you know, malls have clearly lost some momentum over the last year as uh, high-end dominant malls, which were uh, the ones that have been leading the charge for the recovery, they're pretty much full up at, at this point. So it's, it's going to be the responsibility of those somewhat inferior kind of class B and lower caliber malls to mount uh, the rest of the recovery going forward if that overall sector is going to continue to improve. I see. So what do you expect as far as the winners for retail property type? Is it these grocery-anchored centers? Uh, is it these urban centers? Uh, what, what centers are going to benefit the most from uh, you know, our improving economy? You know, it, it really is a case of the haves and have not. So I would say if you're a defensive grocery anchored center, especially in a good infill location, especially uh, on the coastal markets, those centers should, should be just fine. If you're talking about the high-end Class A dominant malls, uh, you know, Tyson's Corner in Northern Virginia or something like that, those centers should be just fine. I think the centers that are going to struggle are going to be the ones that have some kind of deficiency. If you're a non-anchored uh, neighborhood community center, that's going to be an issue going forward. If you are kind of a B-plus or lower-caliber mall, but still uh, kind of searching for demand to come back, even though the economy's been recovering for five and a half years, those centers will probably continue to struggle a little bit, depending upon the individual center. So it is definitely a multi-speed recovery right now. Okay. And Ryan, what are some of the factors that are impacting the recovery in retail? I know the, the drop in gas prices seems to be helping everyone, and people are doing a little more spending in retail, aren't they? Uh, you just about read my mind. So while there are some key trends that are occurring right now, I would say the one that I would really focus on has been the massive decline in energy prices. Uh, when energy prices are in decline and it's actually sustained, which they clearly are at this juncture, it boosts consumer spending. And typically this occurs about six months after the decline begins because it, it takes a little while for consumers to believe that these declines are durable and then consequently adjust their behavior. So the back of the envelope rule is something like a 10 cent sustained decline in the price of a gallon of gasoline causes consumer spending to go up by about $13 billion. So if we examine the decline in gasoline between last summer, when according to AAA it peaked at about $3.69 per gallon, to where we were the last time they did a measurement, which was about $2.13 per gallon, uh, and then use that 10 cent rule of thumb, uh, it translates into about $200 billion of extra consumer spending 
that we wouldn't have had. And that should be a huge boost for retail, certainly an unexpected boost, because it's basically like a tax abatement, because whether gasoline costs $4 a gallon or $2 a gallon, your car is going to run the same way. So you don't derive any extra benefit from the increased cost of gasoline. It basically serves as a glorified tax. So this is like a huge tax abatement for uh, 100 or so million households in the United States. And from what you're saying, since there's a six-month lag, then it's basically the improvements for retail because of the lower gas prices is basically just getting started? Right. That's exactly right. We should really see this materialize uh, to a greater extent over the next six months. Because not that there isn't uh, a relationship between declining gas prices and spending on a, on a sort of real-time basis, but it does take a while for consumers to believe in the declines uh, becoming more durable and then adjust their behavior. So we see uh, a stronger uh, negative relationship, meaning uh, gas prices fall and spending goes up if you lag the data about six months. So we should really see this start to have an impact on consumer spending over the next six months or so. Okay. And one of the things that I find very interesting about the commercial real estate industry is our construction levels. It seems like the lack of new construction has, has really helped the commercial real estate uh, property fundamentals um, and the investment sales. But, uh, you know, retail looks like it's a little bit of a mixed bag uh, from what you're saying. So what are you seeing for new construction levels and, and how do those levels compare to the past? You know, we are still not seeing much in the way of new construction. For 2013, for neighborhood and community centers, there were only about 7 million or so square feet that were delivered in 2014. Uh, that's just about on par with what we've seen over the last few years. On the mall side, we still see virtually no new malls being built from the ground up. Now, certainly there are some additions to malls that are scattered around the country, but in aggregate, that doesn't add up to that much inventory relative to the size of the existing footprint of malls. So I would say the construction environment is still relatively benign, not that it's not going to impact individual centers on a property-by-property basis, but in aggregate, I would say there's no real systematic impact from construction at this point. Okay. Well, what does all this mean for 2015, Ryan? Uh, look into your crystal ball and tell us, you know, what do you think we're going to see moving forward? You know, for neighborhood and community centers, I'd say to probably expect vacancies to fall uh, maybe by about half a percent, 40 to 50 basis points this year, which is a bit of an acceleration versus the last two years. For rent growth, we expect asking rents to grow by roughly 2.5% or so, which would honestly be the best performance since before the recession. And it would actually be in excess of inflation, which would be the first time since the recovery took hold a few years ago that we would see rents growing in excess of inflation. For malls, it is certainly going to be an interesting year because with vacancy having bottomed out for those Class A malls, like I mentioned, any improvement in vacancy is going to have to come from inferior malls. And they're still grappling with ongoing store closures. You know, retailers like JCPenney, Wet Seal, Macy's, and Izod, just to name a few, have announced store closings fairly recently. So it could be another challenging year for the malls because it is going to be those kind of lower caliber malls that have to pick up the slack. Now, that said, the tightness in those Class A malls is going to translate into more meaningful rent growth because the landlords still have the pricing power in those markets. So I would expect uh, more robust rent growth for the sector overall this year. But on the vacancy side, uh, it's really going to be left to those uh, B-plus and lower caliber malls to really pick up the slack if we're going to see any improvement in vacancy this year. We're talking with Ryan Severino, a senior economist with Reese about retail and retail real estate. And Ryan, moving forward, what are some of the factors that could negatively affect retail? 
you know, the, the one that I key in on is really weak wage growth. Uh, I think there's been a lot made in the press about how uh, there has been this kind of rift between have and have not households and how most of the benefits of the economic recovery have accrued to a relatively small percentage of the population. I think that that is certainly true. I think what could help spending going forward and impact the retail center would be if we got stronger wage growth. Wage growth right now is basically trending around inflation. So the majority of households in the economy are basically just treading water, keeping pace with the increase in prices over time. It's certainly been holding back discretionary spending on the part of many households. I think uh, that's really reflected in the performance at the, the individual retail center level, where the top-end centers, those Class A dominant malls, have been, have been scorching lately, whereas the majority of malls have still been struggling. The good news is most economists expect this to accelerate over the next couple of years. We've gotten much better performance out of the labor market in terms of the numbers of job being, jobs being created. The caliber of jobs that are being created is better that we, than we've seen in the past. So I think most rational people expect this to accelerate in the coming years. But that said, if for some reason it doesn't, that's going to continue to hold retail spending back. Because as you can imagine, if most households are just keeping pace with inflation, it's somewhat challenging for them to go out and spend in a discretionary manner. And that is the kind of spending that can move the needle on demand for, for retail space. When consumers finally uh, move past just spending money on necessity items and then move into spending on more discretionary items. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. That's interesting. And we're going to take a short break here. We get back, we're going to talk to Ryan about the investment market. We're going to look at cap rates. We're going to look at sales volume. What all this volatility means for the investment market. Also talk about some possible opportunities. Uh, keep in mind, we have some fantastic shows coming up on the schedule this this year. And uh, you can check out those shows on the show website, CREshow.com. Just hit the tab next. You can also sign up for a once-a-week email announcing the show topic at CREshow.com. Well, stay tuned. We'll have more on retail and retail real estate next with Ryan Severino. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by your friends at Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com or call 800-408-BULL. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Thanks for being with us today. We're talking about retail and retail real estate. We have Ryan Severino with us, Senior Economist with Reese. And uh, Ryan, let's talk about the investment market. In 2014, what was sales volume like? It seemed like in our shop that activity really picked up for retail properties. Well, yeah, I would say, you know, we, we still don't have final volume due to those, you know, non, uh, those pesky non-disclosure states, but I can tell you that based on how the market has been behaving and how fourth quarters usually behave and what I've seen from our preliminary data, it definitely looks like transaction volume last year will set a post-recession high. It will probably be in the, for, for individual property sales, somewhere in the 25 to $35 billion range, depending upon just how strong the fourth quarter was. And, and that would really be the highest volume that we've seen since 2007. And if you remember, in 2007, retail really was the darling of commercial real estate. That was the most favored property type coming out of the last recession before the most recent one that we went through. So uh, things are clearly trending up over time. 
that we're starting to see transaction volumes nudge uh, back toward those pre-recessionary levels. Okay. And, you know, you would think with uh, uh, the job market improving, uh, you've got these gas prices uh, coming down, you have more consumer spending that, you know, that people will be more interested in buying retail real estate. But uh, I guess it still has some volatility, too. So how is that impacting cap rates in 2014 for retail? What did you see? Cap rates last year were generally trending downward for all of the major subsectors. And I think Mm -hmm. uh, you hit the nail on the head that consumer spending is slowly increasing along with the recovery in the economy, the recovery in the labor market, uh, the fact that in the latter half of the year we did probably get a little bit of a boost from uh, the decline in energy prices. So I do think we are seeing interest in retail slowly recover. But as I mentioned with fundamentals, it is a multi-speed recovery. There are definitely certain pockets of the market that have been performing better than others. So I would say we've seen relatively better performance from um, kind of the extremes of the market, sort of the, the very sort of bottom defensive non-discretionary segment of the market's been holding up really well, and then the sort of more affluent luxury high end of the market's been holding up really well. The middle of the market, we haven't seen as much compression because, again, that's where we're still searching for demand to come back, where we're still seeing a lot of households struggle with, uh, with weak income growth, where we haven't seen a lot of discretionary spending on their part, or at least not as much uh, as we would see in a, in a healthier economic environment. So I would say it's, 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 to a large extent it's reflective of what we're seeing on the fundamental side. Okay. And if you will, Ryan, give us some uh, sample cap rates for some various property types or uh, areas. Sure. So if you're talking about neighborhood and community centers overall, you're looking at cap rates somewhere in the kind of 7.5% range, give or take maybe uh, 20 or 30 bips on each side of that. For the malls, it really depends on the caliber of the mall because right now, as I mentioned, there's still that huge disparity in performance. So if we're talking about Class A malls, the cap rates right now are going off, you know, 5%, maybe even lower is not completely unheard of. Uh, because there are relatively few of those malls, they don't trade all that frequently, uh, and demand tends to be pretty robust these days when uh, when a higher-end center does actually come up for sale in the marketplace. But for those kind of Class B and lower-caliber malls, you know, I've actually seen some deals going off at high single-digit cap rates, if not actually low-digit, double-digit cap rates. So it's heavily dependent upon the quality of the mall that's being traded, where it's physically located and if there's some kind of uh, story around that individual center that needs to be taken into account for a sale. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. And I know on the show, we, we talk a lot about cap rates, but, uh, you know, our show listener is very uh, fluent and experienced, and they always understand that, you know, look at every property independently because the strength of the tenant and, the, and the, a lot of factors are going to impact the cap rate and the value of those properties. But having said that, so cap rates have been trending down on some of these properties. What do you expect in 2014, expect, um, 2015, I'm sorry, do you expect that to continue? Yeah, I do. Uh, I, I wouldn't expect to see as much cap rate compression this year as we've seen over the last few years. I think the majority of cap rate compression is probably in the rearview mirror at this juncture. But that said, I do expect to see cap rates generally trending slightly downward for neighborhood and community centers, maybe you know another 10 to 30 basis points overall with some of the stronger centers outperforming that expectation a little bit. Uh, for the mall sector, I think um, you know, depending upon which properties actually come up to trade, we could see some decent movement um, depending upon the composition because there is still a lot of demand for high-end centers out there relative to the supply that could potentially come online. I think for those 
kind of you know class B plus and lower caliber centers, uh, it, it's really going to depend on the mix of centers because I think there are some centers that are out there uh, where the impairment that they're going through is probably a little more temporary and there's still some room for cap rate compression there. The ones that are having issues that are a little more permanent, probably not so much. And so I think overall we expect this to be another year for probably modestly declining cap rates, but I don't expect an outright increase in cap rates this year. Okay. And do you expect new construction to have any impact on uh, the investment market? You know, I really don't at this point. There's still so little new supply that's coming online in the market that this year that it's probably going to have a systematically insignificant impact on the market. Now, that said, as, as, you know, as you just mentioned, especially with retail, so much of retail, I think even more than other major commercial property types, is very property-specific. Where it's located, what its trade area is like, who does it compete with, and I think there will probably be some centers this year uh, here and there that dot the landscape that will have to bear the brunt of a new center coming online. Because I think the one dynamic that I have seen when there's been new construction, and this is, uh, this is more the exception than the rule, so I don't want to overstate the prevalence with which I'm seeing this, but there are some uh, a little more risk-seeking entrepreneurs that are going into areas where the retail is a little bit tired, if you will, and they're coming in and saying, look, I know that there are high vacancy rates in this market, but these centers are, are you know, not the sexiest centers that I've ever seen. I can build something new, offer the existing tenants in a whole bunch of other places, uh, you know, probably attractive rents in a somewhat depressed market, and snatch those away. And so I think that could have an impact because it becomes a glorified game of musical chairs. There isn't necessarily enough demand to satisfy all the inventory in the market, but if the newer, sexier properties can steal tenants away from some of the older ones, that could certainly have a deleterious impact on existing inventory and values in the marketplace. And that's interesting to hear you say that because it seems like we're seeing some of the retailers, some of the larger ones, start to uh, dip their toe in the water for expansion and opening new stores. Yeah, you know, it's it's definitely a mixed bag. I think there are some retailers that are out there that, you know, the times are starting to get better again and they're changing their expectations for the future while we still are seeing some uh, that are, are closing stores and rethinking their strategy. But, you know, overall, I think the trend is positive. I think net absorption should be positive over time. So I think the good is going to outweigh the bad going forward. How about some tips for investors? You know, I think the one thing I would say is be wary of the siren song of those seductively high cap rates. I'm not saying to never do those deals, but it's important to understand where that high cap rate is coming from, whether it's some cyclical or temporary impairment. And I mention that because... Uh, as retail has slowly come back, my phone, when it rings, uh, I think increasingly more people want to talk about some of these centers. And I'm just reminding investors, make sure that you understand whether it's a temporary uh, or permanent impairment in the center, because there's always a, a reason why cap rates are high, and investors need to understand what's causing those high cap rates. Well, that's well said and a good point. And I think there are opportunities in these value-add centers, uh, especially in a lot of the markets that we're looking at. Ryan, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate you being with us. My pleasure as always, Michael. Thank you very much. Well, stay tuned. We'll have more on retail and retail real estate. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by Florida International University. With FIU's Fast Track system, you can earn your master's in real estate in just 10 months without interrupting your career. Visit FIUonline.com to learn more. 
That's FIUonline.com. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Thanks for being with us. Today we're talking about retail and retail real estate. Please welcome my next guest, James Cook. James is National Director of Analytics with Excelligent. James, thanks for joining us here on Skype today. Hey, it's great to be here. Uh, we appreciate it. And, uh, you know, one of the great things that you guys do is your uh, broker sentiments, your surveys of, of all these brokers, these boards that you talk to. And I know you've recently talked to retail brokers all around the country. And, you know, the brokers uh, are are in the pulse. You know, they're kind of seeing what's going on day to day. They kind of know what's coming uh, moving forward. It's like, you know, we know some 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 tenants are going to be expanding that we can't even talk about yet, but we you know we can give you that sense of what's going to happen. So, what are brokers saying about retail real estate? You know what? It's interesting. I see. I still see uh, bifurcation, although these days it's not a split between good and bad. It's a split between good and steady. We surveyed re- retail brokers uh, for the last quarter across the U.S. and we asked them, you know, what's the outlook for the market? Forty-three percent of them said the market is going to be moving at a good pace, so it's going to be improving. And that about that same number, about forty-three percent, said eh, market's going to be about the same for the next six months. I see. And that good pace is there another option for great pace or fantastic pace? There are, there okay. are. Yeah, there is a higher option than that. So nobody is super optimistic, but there are there are many folks who are optimistic. Okay. And how do brokers feel about rental rates for retail properties moving forward? Uh, overall, I don't have those stats in front of me. Um, overall, I think that many folks thought rental rates. Uh, are going to either be again going steady or moving up. I know I do have the the vacancy rate stats in front of me, and 53% said vacancy rates are going to decline in the next six months. So that's more than half. So obviously, with vacancies declining, they're going to be expecting rental rates to increase as well. Yeah, that's a good point, and I expect the same thing. I expect vacancy to uh, to decrease, and I expect uh, rental rates to improve. And I think in some markets, uh, pretty pretty quickly, and uh, it's going to depend on, on the market and the property, of course. Um, well, what do you see as far as retailers expanding? Are you see some of the some of the larger retailers like Walmart uh, starting to expand? Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned Walmart. I was in. Uh an advisory board in, of all places, Bentonville, Arkansas, which is the global headquarters of Walmart. And uh, one of the the top brokers in that market made the comment that they're seeing Walmart is carpet bombing, and those are his words, uh, (laughs) Arkansas, with their neighborhood market concepts, which I'd sort of been vaguely aware of as uh, competition for the local grocery stores, but I didn't realize they were pushing so hard and I took it the I took a look at the numbers and it makes perfect sense Walmart as a whole in the US their same store sales comps so their sales growth from quarter to quarter it's been negative or flat for many quarters um, but their neg- neighborhood markets uh, last quarter grew the sales grew by five and a half percent so they know that if they want to continue to grow the market's saturated at the super center level and they need to roll out a new concept and that's what they're doing with their, these neighborhood markets and the quarter that they're we're in right now they're planning to open another 170 of these neighborhood markets so they're making a huge push wow tell us about those formats what size are those smaller stores 
Yeah, so they've got two. There's what they call the traditional neighborhood market that's about 43,000 square feet, which is going to compete directly with your local grocery store. And they've got another format that they had formerly called Walmart Express between 12 and 15,000, which is more of a competition with you know your convenience stores. Um, this quarter, they're rolling out about 100 of those of the bigger ones, the, the traditional concept, they call them, and another 70 of the smaller ones. Well, I think that's smart to have various concepts to, to fit each market. It, uh, uh, it's a way I think a lot of the retailers are, are doing moving forward. And one of the things that is always impacting, uh, or lately, uh, retailers is online sales, right? You know, what do you expect moving forward? I know online sales is, is growing, and uh, what do you expect to how it's going to impact retailers and uh, the stick-and-brick retail properties? Yeah, you know what? It's a whole new world out there. Mm -hmm. Online sales uh, as a percentage of overall retail sales have been growing every quarter. And retailers, the smart ones, the BRICS retailers, are going to have to totally and completely embrace online in order to succeed. Yeah, so you expect that uh, it's it's going to impact vacancy or uh, occupancy in these retail stick-and-brick properties? Online sales going to hurt it more? Uh, I think that to a certain extent they are. Um, we're probably going to have less. We're going to have in the short term slightly higher vacancies, but in the long term, uh, more physical retail is going to be more important than ever. Um, we're even seeing that online retailers like Warby Parker and Amazon and are moving into the physical world places that they've never been before because they realize how important having physical space is. Yeah, it can really benefit them. Well, stay tuned. We're going to have more on retail and retail real estate. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by Realnex, providing a comprehensive suite of powerful commercial real estate tools at an incredibly low cost. Visit Realnex.com. That's R-E-A-L-N-E-X. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Today we're talking about retail and retail real estate. Please welcome my next guest, Lori Kilberg. She is 2015 president of Crew Network. She's also a partner with a law firm of Hartman Simons, and they do a ton of retail real estate around the country. Lori, thanks for joining us here in Studio One today. It is a pleasure to be here, Michael. Thank well, we you. We appreciate it. And, you know, as we've just talked about, we're seeing a little bit more uh, retail development than we have in the past, but I guess the retail development we're seeing today is a little different than what we've seen in the past, right? Yes, it's it's very interesting actually. During the years of the Great Recession, I thought we would never come back, and what we're seeing now are two really interesting areas of retail development growth, and those are outlet developments as well as mixed-use developments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, it's like those value, I guess, everybody looking for value. And then in the mixed-use development, it's more about the experience, isn't it? Well, I think as, as, as your earlier guest, mm -hmm. Ryan, was talking about, there seems to be a, 
a niche in the market that is, has not been served, and that is the middle income, the lower income consumers. And I think the outlet trend really speaks to them. It's all value oriented. I think that's one of the reasons why there was continued development during the Great Recession in the outlet world. So that started probably um, decades ago, but it continued in full force um, during the Great Recession and has come out of it as almost the new mall. Mm -hmm. I think it's really taking the place of, of the regional malls. And what types of tenants are you seeing uh, that are active in these types of centers? National credit tenants, which mm -hmm. is another reason why they are so successful. Mm -hmm. um, they're easily financeable. The institutional investors are now looking at them very seriously as a great, um, as a great play in the retail market. Um, you've got every national retailer that you can think of. I know now all of all of us go to outlet centers. Mm -hmm. um, they are they are the new the new hot topic. Yeah, yeah, they are. And uh, just one of the retailers, hot topics. Oh actually. yeah, okay, <laughs> all right. And let's uh, if we will, let's talk about the the mixed use developments as well. And on the mixed use developments. Um, what type of tenants are you seeing really active and uh, really important to the developers in these projects? Well, mixed-use developments are, are really, really interesting, mm -hmm. and that is a big play in, in the development trends right now. Um, I think a lot of the reason for that is the urbanization of retail, the idea that people are going back to urban markets. There's not a, a lot of land available. Um, and also, it takes some of the risk away from the development that you have different segments that can that can interplay with each other. You know, you have the residential, you have office, and that supports the retail. So, so that's been great. You're seeing a lot of lifestyle center type tenants mm -hmm. coming into these mixed use developments. Um, they try to bring in you know a high end grocery anchor like a Whole Foods or um, or uh, what else do they, do we see? We we see lots of lots of current current national tenants. Again, mm -hmm. it's, it's a credit game. Right. Everybody wants to make sure that these are financeable. And it's interesting, and since I have such a good lawyer here uh, and they're doing retail uh, real estate law, I think it's interesting when you look at mixed-use developments and, and outlet centers, it's kind of uh, new legal issues for tenants uh, and, and developers to think about. If you will, give us some tips uh, with uh, that retail tenants might want to think about and, and landlords on the uh, outlet mall area. Okay, so the outlet mall, again, is is mostly apparel tenants. So the uses, other than a few furniture tenants, are pretty, are pretty much in line with each other. So exclusives don't really come into play. We want to make sure that there is a free flow and a great tenant mix. Um, from the tenant perspective, you know, based on their experiences over the last few years, co-tenancy is huge. They want to make sure that their key tenants are going to be at these centers because they, they tend to go in packs mm -hmm. and, and they feed off each other. So mm -hmm. they really want that successful mix of tenants there. Very important. Another thing that's very important is a kickout option, usually in the middle of the lease term, where if the center isn't doing what they think it should be doing and their sales are not what they think they should be or what they project them to be, they have an opportunity then to terminate the lease and make a graceful exit. 
that could be hard on the landlord, right? <laughs> it can be very hard on the landlord. Yeah. And, you know, but the landlord, on the other hand, is trying to tie these tenants down with a radius restriction. Okay. So they want to make sure that their outlet development is unique and that you can't shop next door at the same at the same store because, you know, the outlet developments are usually um, – not in city centers they're further away they need more land a lot of times they were failed residential developments that got turned into outlet developments it was a great use and another reason why why they trended so highly um a lot of shopping centers that weren't doing well turned to outlet development and repurposed them so that they could they could do that but from the landlord's perspective you have to be very careful of course with your co-tenancies so that they don't trigger each other and have a domino effect and empty out your center or or decrease the rents you know to to a large degree yeah you have to be careful with that and we'll have a lot of experienced retail people that know about the radius restriction but what's the quick definition for the listener who just heard us on the radio sure you want to make sure that this tenant can open another store under the trade under the same trade name or someone who is indirectly involved with this tenant pop up and open up another store within a certain number of miles from your center so that you can protect the gross sales from your center especially because many landlords are depending upon percentage rent which is derived from gross sales in order to make the center successful yeah well that's interesting and uh, especially when you talk about a couple miles Right. You know, if somebody's uh, doing business in Manhattan, they're like, really? Well, some <laughs> of them are 60 miles. In yeah. the- wow, 60 miles. Well, stay <laughs> tuned. We'll have more on retail. We'll be right back. Excelligent, the resource professionals like CCIMs, CBRE, JLL, Colliers, and Bull Realty use for market intelligence. Commercial Search is the site to market and find available properties to buy, sell, or lease all over the country. Visit commercialsearch.com. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Today we're talking about retail and retail real estate. We have Lori Kilberg with us. She's a 2015 president of Crew Network. She's also a partner with a law firm of Hartman Simons. And Lori, you guys are working on a lot of mixed-use developments. And there's a lot of concepts in mixed-use developments that maybe tenants, uh, maybe landlords, maybe developers themselves haven't dealt with before. What are some tips related to mixed-use developments for for developers and, and landlords? Well, I think the thing we have to remember is that these developments contain, by their definition, mixed uses. So we have residential, apartments or condominiums. We have office. We have retail, of course. And there may be a hotel involved. There may be a convention center involved. So all of these different uses have to interplay. They have to work together. And it becomes very, very important that the documentation, your underlying master documents, consider all of those different uses and how they will work together in an operational sense, as well as in an architectural and a design sense. So so the master documentation is crucial. And the most important thing is it must be flexible because these documents are going to live on for many, many years. 
That's interesting. You know, you think about that, that this is a legal document that most all legal documents are important, but this one might be controlling these tenants and these the, these properties for 100 years from now, right? Right. And so, so you want a basic document that will cover all of these different aspects. And then, depending on the ownership of all of the different uses, because they may start out with one developer who develops everything and then sells off the residential or sells off mm. the office or the retail, um, although the retail is usually the biggest money maker in, in, that, in that group. Mm-hmm. But so, so you may have separate documentation for each of those uses that, that builds off the master documentation. So it, it can get very complex and you need to make sure that you have a great site plan in place, mm-hmm. that everything is well identified, that you have a structure to cover the shared facilities. Those are very important. Mm-hmm. One of the great things about mixed-use developments is that they are placemakers. They mm-hmm. are places where people come and gather together in community. So you want to make sure that the common areas are available for promotional events, for cultural events, for a Cirque du Soleil like in Atlantic Station, for an ice rink like in Avalon, mm-hmm. for um, a rooftop entertainment like at Pond City Market. Mm-hmm. I think all of those things are crucial to the success of the development. And the retailers recognize this, so they're willing to also be much more flexible than they would be in a standard retail development. Yeah, that makes sense. They want people there. They want those events there. But they may have been thought in, uh, 10 years ago, well, look, no, we don't want you having a circus in our, in our right. parking lot, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> but it, as, as, um, as James, I think, was saying, mm-hmm. or Ryan, the Internet has taken mm-hmm. so much of the shopping dollars that, mm-hmm. that developers are very, very interested in finding creative ways to bring people to their developments, and that's certainly one of them. If you're a tenant and you're looking at um, one of these spaces in a mixed-use development, what are some other considerations? I'd be concerned about parking and access. Mm -hmm. I mean, as as a retailer, I want to make sure that my customers can get to me. Mm -hmm. Parking is always a huge concern in these mixed-use developments because it's so limited. Um, There may be a parking garage. There may be costs associated with that. Mm -hmm. Um, Signage is crucial. The, The design rights are crucial. And what happens if part of the development burns down? You know, you also have to think about, people don't like to think about what happens in the event of a casualty, but that's also very important to to consider up front so that you know what your rights and remedies are. You make sure the parties all have the right insurance in play, and it and it, it's important to talk to a lawyer about that. <laughs> <laughs> Good tip, Lori. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. We appreciate you joining us on the 40 radio stations, iTunes, and YouTube, and the show website. Please join us next week. We'll talk about the multifamily markets, which certainly been hot. Uh, join us next week. Be sure you always lead, learn, and laugh, and see us on the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty Commercial Advisors, a great place to do business. Visit bullrealty.com. Realnex, a comprehensive and powerful suite of commercial real estate tools at an incredibly low price. Visit realnex.com. That's R-E-A-L-N-E-X. FIU, Florida International University. Earn your master's in real estate in as little as 10 months without interrupting your career. Visit FIUonline.com. 
Excelligent, the resource professionals use for commercial real estate information. Visit Excelligent.com. That's X-C-E-L-I-G-E-N-T. Commercial Search, the source to market and source available properties for sale or lease. Visit CommercialSearch.com. For more information on these great companies or for additional videos, podcasts, or articles, visit CREshow.com.